Hello and welcome to another episode of Asia Perspectives by Economist Impact. I'm Harshin Sethi. I'm Ayushi Eta Sharma. And I'm Ankita. Thank you for joining us. Less than a month after COP27 took place in Egypt in November, Asian countries remain at a critical juncture in their climate journeys. Despite tabling some historic agreements this year, such as the Loss and Damage Fund, there is a lot left to be negotiated in the coming year. At Economist Impact, we have been closely following the developments at COP, and in this episode of the podcast, we reflect on this year's climate conference and take a closer look at Asia's role during discussions. We focus both on progress and on missed opportunities. Turning back to you, Ankita and Ayushi, can you walk us through the key actors from Asia at COP? What they were hoping to achieve at the conference, and if they were successful. Sure. Well, thanks, Harshin. It's great to be here. Asian leaders actively participated in COP27, but a few stood out due to different reasons. The usual suspects, like China, Indonesia, and India, are important voices from Asia due to their size and their contribution to greenhouse gas emissions. But as the co-chair. Pakistan also played a crucial role in the negotiations this year. Before the conference even began, Islamabad successfully put the issue of loss and damage onto the summit agenda. This broadly refers to efforts to avert, minimize, and address loss and damage associated with climate change, especially in developing countries. This has previously been a point of contention between countries. On a related note, ASEAN countries, a majority of whom bear the brunt of climate-related natural disasters, advocated for expanding the definition of loss and damage, pushing for climate finance, and calling for rich countries' transparency on funds. Absolutely, and as Ayushi was just telling us, China and India also shined at COP this year. It was interesting to see the resumption of climate talks between China and the U.S. at COP27 after a suspension of all cooperation between the countries given Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan this August, when she reiterated America's position of alignment with the territory. This year, for the first time, India laid out a plan for long-term decarbonization. India was also vocal in turning up the heat on developed countries to do more than their current actions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the other actor in the limelight this time was Indonesia. Indonesia led in-depth discussions on its commitment towards more balanced greenhouse gas absorption in forestry and other land use sectors. Previously, the country has also shown some readiness to work on the Paris Rulebook at COP26. That's right. On the other hand, countries like Japan and Australia. took the heat from global environmental groups for financing the international fossil fuel energy sector in other countries however these are only some of the key themes that emerged at cop this year and many issues were sidestepped i think no conversation on cop 27 can begin without going back to the creation of the loss and damage fund a historic climate justice event for many countries even outside of asia the idea of a fund through which most climate vulnerable nations receive technical and financial assistance from wealthier nations has long been resisted for the fear that it could open the latter to legal liability for historic emissions 
This dates back to Vanuatu's 1991 idea of an insurance scheme to help pay for the consequences of rising sea levels. At COP27, Pakistan successfully pushed to have the loss and damage fund included as an agenda item after facing huge losses to floods earlier this year. This ultimately led to consensus on the fund two whole days after COP was scheduled to end on November 20th. Currently, approximately $262 million is pledged to this fund. The Santiago Network for Loss and Damage was also launched at COP27. This was initially discussed at COP25 and it aims to catalyze the technical assistance of relevant organizations and experts, for instance, early warning systems, emergency preparedness, and so forth, to minimize the loss and damage in countries that are particularly vulnerable to the adverse effects of climate change. Yeah, I'd say that another good outcome at this year's COP was the Bridgetown Agenda. Spearheaded by the Prime Minister of Barbados, the agenda calls upon global financial systems to rethink their approach to tackling climate change. The initiative aims to address immediate financial concerns and increase vulnerable countries' resilience to shocks, for instance, to relocate affected low-income communities, agricultural losses, etc. Low-interest long-term loans backed by multilateral agencies like the World Bank, would also accelerate private investment in this space. Essentially, the Bridgetown Agenda is seen as a Marshall Plan for climate change to provide immediate liquidity for the debt crisis in developing countries which are already reeling under the impact of rising fuel prices due to the Russian invasion of Ukraine and in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. As the most climate-vulnerable region in the world, all these decisions have significant implications for Asia. Indeed, Ayushi. And to put that into context, Pakistan recently saw severe floods, which incurred losses worth $46 billion, or you could say 13% of the country's GDP. But this is just the tip of the iceberg. Several such events have unfolded in Asia in the past year including dust storms and cyclones, and 80% of climate-related events have been floods, which led to heavy casualties and large economic losses. So yes, a loss and damage fund is definitely the need of the hour for Asian economies. This was the standout progress at COP27 as developing countries that had previously struggled to get richer nations, particularly the US and EU, agreed to discuss it at all. In fact, Halfway through COP27, the U.S. had claimed that a fund to compensate developing countries was just not happening. Things changed only after the EU had put forth a proposal on loss and damage on the condition that it should only be for the most vulnerable nations and that the donor base should be broadened to include countries like China, whose economy has significantly grown in the past couple of decades and is now the world's largest greenhouse gas emitter. So such countries do not qualify to get aid from richer countries. Now, well, it remains to be seen who should pay how much for the fund, where this money will come from, and which countries will ultimately benefit. At the same time, this fund is not an elixir to solve all the climate issues. We do have to curb emissions, or else the need for the loss and damage fund is only going to grow in the coming years. Indeed. Asian countries are making progress on this front, but it's certainly not enough. 
Let's look at the top three most populous developing economies in Asia: China, India, and Indonesia. China enhanced its emission targets last year. It aims to lower carbon intensity by 65% and increase the share of non-fossil fuel-based consumption by around 25% by 2030. The country also aims to be carbon neutral before 2060. As the biggest emitter, accounting for about a third of global emissions, it has a lot to do to drive these down. If China's net zero targets were to cover all GHG emissions, its long-term strategy could be within paris agreement compatible emission levels that's true separately india ahead of the summit enhanced its emission intensity targets from 33 to 45% it also increased its non fossil fuel based energy targets from 40 to 50% by 2030 it plans to achieve net zero by 2070 right before the summit India launched Mission Life which aims to inspire individual action and behavior change especially among societies with a high carbon footprint to reduce emissions and contribute towards achieving the goal of net zero. The targets could be achievable if they follow through their emphasis on solar energy. But India will continue to develop coal in the long term. So there is a definite gap in the government's plans and emission pathways to meet its net zero targets. That's true Ayushi and Indonesia is another one. Indonesia which is a heavily coal dependent economy has enhanced its Paris agreement targets for 2030 from 29% initially to 32% at present. Nevertheless the country has no explicit net zero targets. Its targets remain weak. not very well aligned with the goals of the paris agreement and they are ultimately subject to funds availability overall it seems that all three countries aim for ambitious targets but are way off the mark with respect to limiting global temperature and it's interesting to note here that indonesia recently partnered with gedp the just energy transition partnership for financing its energy transition projects A bit of a background on the GDP. It was brokered by the US, Japan, and seven other European countries. The partnership aims to reduce emissions in the energy sector and accelerate the coal phase-out process. It was initiated to support South Africa's decarbonisation efforts last year. They promised to mobilise 8.5 billion dollars for the first phase of financing. through various mechanisms including grants concessional loans and investments and risk sharing instruments this year indonesia has been promised 20 billion dollars in public and private financing to fuel its transition from dirty to clean energy vietnam is also expected to join the partnership next year and talks are also going on with india to join ah that seems like a promising collaboration Would you say that these funds are enough to help economies transition to clean energy though? To be honest, sadly not really. There are some intricacies to keep in mind in addition to financing. If you look closer at Indonesia itself, money is not the only hurdle here. There are systemic issues hindering their transition. In the past decade, coal's share of its power generation has gone from 49 to 61%. that has led to huge overcapacity making it harder for renewables to compete 
The sector also employs a quarter of a million people and has a high contribution to the GDP. There are political limitations too. Most Indonesian mines are controlled by a few family conglomerates with deep pockets and heavy political clout. Ten years after the central government in 2001 transferred authority for approving new mines to regional governments, the number of mining permits rose 13-fold, peaking around election time. So unless there is a strong political will, Funds can only do so much to aid the efforts to decarbonize the nation. Coalitions like JTP will only be a success if the political statements and investment plans actually deliver the transformational public and private financing required to pivot towards a clean energy system. Yeah, well, we've talked a bit about Indonesia and this partnership, but so far India hasn't participated in the GEDP. What's your take on India passing up this opportunity, Ankita? I think you're on to something here. So India's interest so far has been low, and there are multiple reasons that could be driving this hesitancy. Let's look at South Africa, which was the first country to join the partnership. Their coal fleet on an average is over 40 years old and now in major need of retrofitting, which we know is a costly affair. Also, their power utility company holds a monopoly in the power sector and has been debt-ridden. So South Africa is really a willing participant in this partnership. Now, if you look at India, the coal sector is comparatively new and highly profitable. The average age of coal power plants in India is just around 13 years. Moreover, it does not have a debt problem like South Africa since state-owned banks fund the sector. So it is not really bothered by foreign investments for coal at this point. India argues that coal cannot be singled out as a polluting fuel and energy transition should happen more broadly. Nonetheless, such a deal will be a good way for India to start thinking ahead because profitable or not, coal absolutely needs to be phased out if India really plans to achieve its emission targets on time. Indeed, Ankita. I bet all countries need a better plan for climate transition and to stop burning fossil fuels at this point. Despite some big wins at COP27 that we highlighted, some important issues that were expected to be included in the agenda were missing. The top three issues that received less attention than they deserved at this COP were phasing out fossil fuels, something we just spoke about, with the other two being strengthening food security systems, and ramping up measures for biodiversity conservation. What did you think of these? True, we had hoped to see the UNFCCC mandate to cover food systems transformation be expanded at this COP. The Coronavia Joint Work on Agriculture, which was agreed upon at COP23 in 2017, recognized the potential of agriculture to tackle climate change and dealt with both mitigation and adaptation. It is currently the only program to focus on agriculture and food security under UNFCCC. References to food systems approaches were reduced in this COP and the original text was stripped off of critical interventions such as nutrition and dietary shifts and adaptation and mitigation work plans for food systems. Given Asia's heavy reliance on agriculture, reducing productivity due to extreme weather conditions and high food inflation, 
food security is a critical issue for Asian economies. Delays in measures across socio-economic and agricultural dimensions of climate change will have severe implications on adaptation actions necessary for global food security. Yeah, and on the biodiversity front, the summit did not see any push on biodiversity conservation, a key area of concern for climate change adaptation. The 2021 COP at Glasgow led to some significant deals around forest conservation and had a strong focus on nature-based solutions, leaving much to be desired from this year's COP. The Asia-Pacific region is exceptionally rich in biodiversity, home to nearly 50% of the world's biodiversity hotspots. Given the rich biodiversity in Asia, there's a lot of potential to adopt nature-based solutions for its economic development. For example, if Indonesia is more active in finding alternatives, the loss of Borneo's rainforest for timber, palm oil, pulp, rubber, and minerals could be mitigated. So Asia's participation cannot be ignored if biodiversity preservation is what COP aims to achieve. The UNCBD Summit, which is the United Nations Convention on Biological Diversity, is currently in progress in Montreal as we speak, with China presiding over the summit. An added push from COP would have urged countries to be more active in the space and push for achieving the biodiversity targets. A much-needed push in this space, and there's certainly a lot to watch for in this space in the coming months. On that note, let's briefly talk about the one key area that the world needs to keep its eyes on as it looks to COP28. I would say that with India assuming the G20 presidency, all eyes would indeed be on India on how it would steer the G20 towards providing adequate finance to the global south and adhering to the principles of climate justice. I'd say everyone is keenly watching the loss and damage fund and how it shapes up. The creation of the fund was a historic win after the Paris Accord and demonstrated that when countries come together to act on climate issues, they can really get the necessary work done. On the other hand, a lot depends on countries being able to walk the talk on decarbonizing. It remains to be seen exactly how this energy transition unfolds among major emitters in Asia. And by that, I mean, if oil gains traction due to all the geopolitical turmoil that is happening right now, would we still see considerable gains in decarbonization? And yet, there's been some good momentum at this COP that we need to keep going in the lead-up to COP28 in UAE. However, we are now at time, so I just want to thank you both and to our listeners for joining. Please be sure to check out our last episode on the Loss and Damage Fund in case you missed it. And do read Economist Impact Summary of COP27 on our website. It's a very useful overview of all the things we've talked about here. And if you're keen to read more about sustainability and what Economist Impact has done in this space, please check out the Sustainability Project. The relevant links are in the show notes. Thank you again for joining us today.